Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in the heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. So welcome to the inaugural, absolutely first episode of I Am Speaking. We are your hosts. I'm Shay Lushi. I'm Kosha. We are sisters. We are sisters. And have become friends. Yeah, we've always been friends, I think, but like all friendships, maybe they sort of ebb and flow based on the what's going on with people and in your lives and yeah. geographically. Somehow we always keep coming together though. Yeah. Well, I think I mean we bonded pretty early when we were little. It's not Did like- you think it was like forced bonding? Like did you feel we only had each other or we were taught that like you only have each other? I think we definitely were sort of taught that like you have to, you know, be for your family and be with your family and there's no opportunity or there's no, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't just get to be like, that's it. And we're just going to argue about this forever and ever. Like there's always needing to come to resolution and Mm -hmm. to sort of figure out how to move forward, even when you're upset with someone. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, figuring that situation out, whether it's a small hurt or a big hurt, figuring it out and moving forward was a huge thing in our family. Yeah. There was no like going away and just being upset. Like you will... Yeah. I, there were, we had a lot of people in our family. So Shailish and I are two of four kids. Shailish is the oldest than me. And then you will meet our other siblings um, pretty soon this season. Uh, Spruha is a few years younger than me. And then Trayu is the baby. Well, not so much a baby, but he brought up the rear. There. Yeah, absolutely. No, I don't think that it was forced. I think that there were times when we were maybe pushed together when maybe we would have rather been doing something separate, you know, and I know I can say that for myself and I imagine it was the same for you that you would have rather been doing something that you wanted to do when it was Shaylee, she's doing this. So go do that with her, whether it was, you know, athletics or whether it was just Shaylee, she's going outside to go outside and play with her. And you would have rather been doing something different indoors. Yeah, athletics, I definitely, you know, you played soccer and you swam. And so I played soccer and I was on the swim team. Mm -hmm. And now looking back, I mean, I was not good at either of those for whatever reason. And now I run and I'm like, oh, I wonder what would have happened if I had discovered running earlier. Mm -hmm. But that was just never an option, right? Because, I mean, it's, you know, I was listening to Hank Azaria the other day and he said, Parenting has only become a verb to parent has only Mm -hmm. become a verb in the past, like 15 years. It used to be child rearing or raising a family. So, you know, not to put down that generation of parents, but there was an element of like, no, you, you're our kids. You're not necessarily each individual, each individual, something is going on. So you don't get individual things, you know, versus Mm -hmm. uh, one of your siblings, but no, we've been, I mean, we're in our forties now. And so we've 
been together for over 40 years, most of them good. Yeah. Most of them good. Really? Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, we had moments when we were closer and moments when we were doing our own thing. And that is to be expected. You know, there was right around the time that you got married was right around the time that I had my first child. And so we were doing those things at the time that we were, you know, that was just a timing thing. And there was maybe less focus on being there for each other or connecting with each other because we were having those set of experiences. And when you had your first child, I was dealing with my, you know, an issue with my second child. And so there was support, but again, need to focus on some of the things that we ourselves were going through. But it seems like since we've moved back from California, you know, my family and I have moved back from California. Those, you know, the last four or five years have been the two of us really getting closer and closer and not just being like close siblings, but I think really exploring what it means to be siblings and friends and actively rethinking some of the patterns from our childhood that maybe we adopted because we didn't know any other way or it felt kind of, again, pushed on us. And we now get to say, hey, we don't want to do things this way. What does it mean to have a friendship when we're also siblings and we have a history of certain types of, you know, patterns in our past? Do those work for us? Actively thinking about do those work for us? And if they do, great. If they don't, how do we renegotiate those patterns so that people feel loved, they feel safe, and they can hold the boundaries that they need to hold for themselves and that the other person isn't like, Ugh, why don't you want to X or Y? Like, don't not take it personally. Yeah, and I, I agree that, you know, we've always been close, but the last few years since you've moved back, it's, it's really gone to a level where we've challenged each other. We question each other in very loving ways. And we've had some debates or Mm -hmm. discussion around, you know, well, this is what I need. You you know, you haven't given it to me, but, and you used to, right? Like you used to do X and now you're not doing it anymore. And we've kind of challenged that. But I think every single time we've had those discussions, it's become Mm -hmm. just, we've become closer and stronger. Yeah. I might, one of my favorite stories from very recently. So I have a lot of anxiety for those of you who are listening who don't know. And I'm very sensitive, right? Like I, I think I'm very nervous about hurting other people's feelings or, you know, I, I don't have very thick skin. Shul's just kind of opposite. I mean, you're sensitive, but you, you really have a better way of like letting things either roll off your back or putting them in context and perspective. Yeah. I, I, I'm sensitive in a different way. Well, and you don't mind ruffling people's feathers no. when they need it or when they I don't. And I have a much easier time being like, that's their problem. Yes. Um that's that- one of my that's one of the things I've learned from you is saying like, well, that sounds like a you problem. Yeah. You know, you don't have to take everything on you. But we were talking, this is probably a year and a half ago now. It was before the pandemic. We were talking and we we're talking about just family dynamics and things like that. And Shailu, she said to me, Well, you know families get annoyed with each other and that's what we do. And she said, you know, everyone in our family has annoyed me at least once in this past week. And instead of going, oh yeah, I know. I go, well, when have I annoyed you in the last week? And Sheila, she said, does right now count? <laughs> so it's just, that's our relationship. And, you know, she's able to put me in line or at least bring some perspective. I think that's better. Like, I'm not looking to put you in your no, place, no. but 
I'd like to be the counterbalance maybe, or I, I can provide a perspective that's a counterbalance. And that isn't to say that I'm like some sort of like sage where I'm like, I have it all figured out. It works the same way for you and me too. You know, you provide me with counterbalance. And when I'm particularly like all up in my anger and annoyed and oh, this and that, and I can't believe it. And you have a way of asking me like, well, can't it be that this thing and that thing? And I'm just like, it is both true. And I'm super annoyed that you pointed out that I <laughs> maybe am taking things the wrong way or I'm, you know, like, this is my way of taking it too personally. You know, it's not someone doing something is not about me all the time. You know, the, what I remember is I had a couple years ago invited some people over, you know, you and, and your husband and then a couple of other, you know, families, friends that and cousins that were close to for my birthday. And one person said, you know, we can't make it because we have these other plans. And I remember thinking, oh, well, can't they just do that a different day and this and that? And don't they care about me? And, and you go, well, couldn't it just be that this is what they're choosing to do? And I was like, so mad at you for pointing that out <laughs> because you were right. Like that's, it's right. People make decisions based on what they need to do for themselves. But at the same time, like, it's really hard when someone very gently points out, maybe it's not all about you. And you could, but my life is all about me. Right. It's my so. birthday. Right. Well, I think there's also an element of, for you, you are very passionate about a lot of things. And so when yeah. you're upset or when you're happy or, you know, when you're all on board for something, you're like, I'm on board. Look at this huge boat. Everyone joined. Yeah. Me. Right. Because you also, you don't like doing things alone, no. right? Like you're like, every, like we're having a party. Everyone's going to party. Yeah. And it's hard to be like, but maybe not everyone wants to party. I know. And you're like, well, that's, that's a them problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's a them problem. Yes. You will party. Yes. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about how we grew up, what it was like in Streeter. And what's very interesting in our stories from small town to where we are now, which is just right outside Chicago is that at various points, right around the same age, basically, you and I left that small town for a place that was far more multicultural, far more diverse, far more metropolitan, you know. And inclusive. And inclusive. So let's start with, you know, us moving to Streeter. So I was two mm -hmm. when we moved to Streeter. I made you about six. Yep. I had... I had finished kindergarten where we were, and we moved this summer after kindergarten. You for did me. kindergarten at, in Libertyville? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, my dad, our dad is a physician, and he had an opportunity in Streeter, Illinois. Um, shout out to Streeter. Yeah. And up and moved, well, the four of us at the time. Yeah. To Streeter. Yeah. He and took over someone's urology practice, and that was really quite an opportunity for my dad and our whole family. But that meant that we left, you know, the environs of Chicago, which was certainly a lot more diverse and, and a lot family. and a family. Lot family up in the Chicago land area. Right. And a whole cultural community because Chicago was really the epicenter for a certain group of Indian moving there. So growing up, you know, between the ages of zero and six for me, there was a lot more connection to Indian families, specifically Gujarati families. And the cultural celebrations that went along with that. Um, but moving to Streeter was 
you know, its own sort of adventure, a small town. It's about two hours south of Chicago, a little over. Yeah. But it is in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's we, surrounded by farming communities. Yeah. It used it, to have it's a one huge of those places where you like turn left at the yeah. silo. Right. It used to have a glass factory and that had shut down by the time we got there. And from what, you know, we can piece together back in its heyday, Streeter was, I mean, the place to be. It was the stop between Chicago and St. Louis. That didn't happen in our time. Though. No, okay. that was well before us. Okay. That's right, um, because if you looked at it when we were there, it was like remnants of that. Yeah. Anything. When we were there in the eighties, it was definitely moving toward um, small farming community where, you know, the people who lived in town, either, you know, worked in businesses in town, there were teachers or there was a hospital there. So there was a whole medical community and uh, that supported a lot of people. People had small businesses to, you know, to support either the people in town or farmers that came into town. Um, And really it was built up at that point. It was basically about, you know, self-sustaining and farmers from surrounding areas. And there was a huge, the immigrant population there was very heavily, well, at that time, Czechoslovakian, mm-hmm. yeah. Yugoslavian. Um, and some and, Polish, and yeah. some Polish. Right. And a lot of that, and we'll hear about this from a couple one of, of our guests, our, yeah, yeah. One of our guests, is that they go there for a job and then they bring their family. They sponsor people and bring mm-hmm. their family. So yeah. We went there and we were really thrust in a new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I was too. So I don't remember it being a shock to me. Do you remember it being a shock? Um, I wouldn't say it was a shock. I mean, when you're six, your whole world is pretty small. Like everything felt big, right? You know, Chicago felt big and Streeter felt big. I think I started to really notice how different it was a couple of years after we moved there. So first and second grade, no problem. But by the time I was in third grade, um, I had moved from the public school, the local public school, to one of the Catholic schools in town. And that was one of the things where I was like, oh, I'm really different than the people who are in my classroom. We were not raised Catholic. So right. a lot of people ask me when I say I went to Catholic school, or, well, I didn't realize you're Catholic. We are not. We were not raised Catholic. Our parents are Hindu. But as immigrants coming to this country, it was very much focused on opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so they were very, they prioritized opportunities for us. Right. And so the public school, my understanding was not all that great, or they deemed it not all that great. And so they moved you to the Catholic school, which yeah. had just accolades and was a fantastic school. And the fact that it was a Catholic school was secondary. Right. To the fact that academically it was considered superior. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. But that was when I really started to notice the difference between, you know, who I was or what I was raised like, or, you know, even just what I look like and, and the people I was sitting next to that also alongside the fact that we were still very regularly going up to visit family in the Chicago suburbs, less dense at the time, obviously, but we had family that lived in the South suburbs. We had family that lived in the West suburbs of Chicago and even some of the far North suburbs and just being there too, still going to cultural celebrations in various parts of Chicago, seeing how different it was to be at home versus, you know, 
at a, a family member's house, an aunt and uncle's house in the burbs or at these cultural celebrations, you really start to notice how differently you get treated in a place where you clearly are not blending in. I wouldn't say that I felt like I didn't belong. It's that it was clear that I didn't blend in and that just the color of my skin, my name, so many things made me different. And I felt on the outside of various things. Um, I started kindergarten at the Catholic school. And so it was very normal for me to see you, you know, we'd be mm-hmm. from school and stuff. And it was pretty evident to me early that I was different and that they never, uh, to their credit, I would say they never made that equal bad until it was like sixth grade where I had a run-in with my teacher at the time. But for years, and even at that time, it was not considered bad. I I feel like we were welcome. We were embraced, but it was like, come tell us about your thing. Mm -hmm. Right. We would go to India and come back and I'd have, have to give a presentation about, you know, what India is like and what's cricket and things like that. And now I look back and it was like, yes, that was a learning opportunity for the class, but it was putting me on a dais, Mm -hmm. right. Saying like, you talk about how you're different. And we can learn from you. Not everyone is talking about what they did on. They're not giving a whole presentation about what they did on their Christmas break. Right. Uh, but I, the, the one memory that sticks out in terms of this was the first real memory that I was like, I am different is uh, my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Schaefer. Woo woo. We can cut that out. Um, invited mom to come talk about India in our kindergarten class. And she talked about India and she brought saris and pictures. And I was so proud of her. And I kind of mm-hmm. like, I puffed out my chest. I thought it felt very special. And then a kid raised his hand and said, are you Brown? Because you don't shower every day. And I, it was like popping or not even popping a balloon, but like letting the air out of a balloon. I felt oh my God, that's what this person sees mm-hmm. when they see me. They see a dirty person, not an interesting, unique person, or not even just one of their classmates. They right. think that I'm dirty because I'm brown. Yeah. And I've since gotten over that. You know, that was when I was five, but it stuck with me to be yeah. like, you are different here. Yeah, absolutely. Did it's- you have a moment like that? Oh uh, yeah. In third or fourth grade, I remember we were watching one of those film strips And this would have been right around the time that the whole, like, we are the world, you know, famine in Africa was really sort of full force and capturing everyone's, you know, collective attention and imagination. And we were watching some film strip about it. And the teacher basically said, well, you know, this is happening to them because they don't believe in Jesus. And I was like, okay, well those people are brown and I'm brown. So you, and you all know that I don't believe it. You know, I'm not Catholic. So, you know, connect the dots. I deserve this because I don't believe in Jesus. Um, I mean, there were any number of things like that. And now did you let that go? I was in third grade. I let that one go. Okay, You're third grade. Yes. I let that one go. There was a point when seventh grade, maybe 
like seventh and eighth grade was when I got really argumentative. It must have been seventh grade because at one point I, I had your mom and dad would disagree that that's when you started getting argumentative. in class. How about that? <laughs> okay, argumentative in class. At one point I talked about evolution. I argued for evolution. And then at another point I argued in favor of abortion in a classroom of Catholics. So that was really, if you could see my else. face right now, I'm like my, I don't know that story. Yeah. Yeah. I, no one should be surprised that Shayla, she is has been working. No well, yeah. argumentative. No one's surprised about that, but no. <laughs> no one should be surprised that you have worked in reproductive justice for 30 20, years. Yeah. yeah 25 years. years. Yeah. But I would, so I went a different way in sixth grade. My teacher said something about, um, actually the word, the quote was, you know, all these religions, when they believe in, uh, reincarnation, that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I was sitting in the back of the room and I like started crying like that. Wow. I mean, if anyone knows the difference between me and Shalushi, that should not surprise you. But I was like, because I also was like, this is their class about religion. Mm -hmm. I felt like I wasn't allowed to say yeah. like, they're talking about religion in a Catholic school. Am I even allowed to say, excuse me, that's mean. Right. You know, that offended me because to me, I can imagine that that teacher at the time would have been like, you don't even belong here. Mm. She doesn't even go here. That idea. Yeah. Did you ever have that? No, but I don't react that way to things. Correct. Yeah. I react by getting aggressive, argumentative. Right. So if I feel put upon, if I feel like someone's making a statement about me that's wrong or unfair, not just wrong, but unfair or a group of people, it's unfair. I go on the offensive. So that was my conversation about, you know, that was arguing for evolution. That was arguing in favor of abortion is, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think it's fair. I don't think that this viewpoint is fair to the people that you're talking about. It's not that, oh, here, let me, let me be a little bit more nuanced about it. It's not that a viewpoint is wrong. It's your view. It's your perspective. But that, you know, the ellipses between we don't believe in evolution and what about the people who do believe in evolution is where I start to take offense. Right. You can absolutely think that abortion is wrong based on your faith. But it's a dot, dot, dot. Then what about the people who do have abortions? That is where I start to get offended on other people's behalf. Yeah, right. You don't know those people's lives. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know why they're making those decisions. And to paint everything with a single moral brush is where I start to get like, you're making judgments about people. And you don't know what, what their lives are like. You're making judgments about people who believe in evolution when you don't know you're choosing to adopt these set of beliefs. Other people can choose to adopt a different set of beliefs that lead them to accepting that evolution happened. To make different decisions. Yeah. That's, that, that is where I start to get like, how dare you? Not how dare you think abortion is wrong. How dare you then use your beliefs to decide that a whole bunch of other people are wrong in their decision making. And I've used that a bunch of times. It's your morality is not everyone's morality. Exactly. Right. I learned that from you. So, right. I mean, it's a, that's a whole nother set of conversations we can have, but yeah, so that's, that's, was my reaction more like, no, that's not fair. It's not fair to other people um, to think about it that way. 
So I want to pivot here because we could, again, we could talk about our childhood forever and ever and talk about stories, but I want us to then move forward, jump forward a little bit to us leaving Streeter and moving into these more cosmopolitan, multicultural, inclusive, diverse places. For me, it was when I left home at 15 to go to the Illinois Math and Science Academy as a sophomore. We lived, we still lived in Streeter yes. when you left. So you did one year at the public school in Streeter, the, yep, high, the school. high school, and then moved on. What made you, how did you decide to go to IMSA? Well, the public school at the time, Streeter High School, was facing a huge budget crisis. They were over a million dollars in debt and had opted to close that gap by um, slashing all of their accelerated programs and all of their developmental programs. So it wasn't just that I was going to have to work down, quote unquote, that I, that accelerated classes would not be available to me. It was that everyone was being mainstreamed regardless of their ability. They were going to offer one set of classes, one set of science classes, you know, one mm-hmm. set of math classes, and everyone was just going to be tracked there. They also cut as a part of that, most of their extracurriculars, you know, all of their clubs, music, band, art. I mean, they they basically cut so much stuff. And again, going back to your, you know, statement about going to Catholic school, well, education is a priority. And if you aren't going to get what you need here, we need to think about what else, where else we can go. So it's really similar, actually, mm-hmm. to what happened to you in third grade. Right. And yeah, absolutely. What happened to me in third grade. I think the difference between you know, me going away to school and then our whole family moving to the Chicago burbs before you needed to go into high school was that there was a one-year turnaround for me. We knew that this was coming. And so this was a bit of a a last-ditch almost approach to be like, can we find a better option for Shailushi or are we going to have to move right away? Once I got into IMSA, then it was, I know mom and dad had started to think about, this is always going to be an issue here. Now we need to start thinking forward about what happens when Kosha needs to go into high school. Academically, you and I were similar. Yes. Yeah. And so they kind of, they had a glimpse into the future. Right. Now that we have... She'll, she figured out at IMSA, what do we do? Do we put Kosha in IMSA? Do we move? And so they had already planted that seed. Right. They were already thinking about that. Opportunities and things. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of things happened. I think mom and dad were wanting to maybe be a little bit closer to dad's well, and by that time brother and had, sister. Right. And by yeah. that time we had two more siblings. Yeah. We had two additional siblings. Two additional and, siblings. And that was always, good, you know, the, the high school situation was always going to be a part of the mix for however many more years. And so I think that's, they started to think about it when I was a freshman slash sophomore and then, you know, started working on getting everything in line so that by the time, you know, a couple of years had passed, they were ready to make the move from small town, Illinois to the Chicago suburbs. So tell me, tell us about, your move to IMSA. So I had a very traumatic experience when yeah. you left, which we'll talk about later. But um, when you moved to IMSA and you suddenly were not the only brown girl, mm-hmm. you, you looked really like everybody else. Very, very diverse. A lot of Asian Americans, correct? 
Mm-hmm. Many, many Asian Americans and not just Asian Americans. So there were obviously people from, you know, who, you, who we would now call East Asians, people from China, Japan, Korea, the Philippines. Then, and there were a lot of South Asians, especially from the Chicago burbs, a lot of South Asians from like Naperville and like Highland Park and sort of all these sort of the more um, extended collar of the suburbs, which had really great schools. And amazingly, I mean, maybe not so amazingly, a lot of kids who were first generation because their parents were immigrants and their parents were thinking the same things that our parents were, which is education is really, really important. We came here for opportunity and any this is up. the best school for math and science. So. Any way to get a leg up, mm-hmm. any way to edge out in that opportunity that we yeah. can provide, we will. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, you you joke about this, but you were at the top of your class. Oh, yeah. Academically, you were at the top of your class. And I've heard you say, I went from being one of the academically, you know, smarter, quote, smarter kids to one of the dumber kids. Yeah. So how was that to, to not only, I mean, you really had a jolt when you, when you, yeah, that was, streeter. that was really strange. I mean, it was, it was really, and I think this is a true of a lot of kids who I went to school with. Um, and one of the more interesting things about IMSA is that they, the school, and I, I don't know this to be the case now, but certainly when I went there, first of all, I was within the first five years of it opening. So uh, it had only been open. I didn't you know, realize that. Yeah. I didn't really realize that either, but I graduated. I was a fifth class graduate. Wow. Opened. It took in its first class in 89 and I graduated. No, I was a fifth class to be accepted because I went there in 91. So yeah. So you're the, the fifth full class. Yes. Right. Graduated in 94. So I was yeah. one of I was the fifth full class to come in. So yeah. So they were still figuring things out. The school was still figuring things out, but it was started with this really beautiful lofty mission to, you know, provide the best math and science education, you know, to all gifted students in the state of Illinois, regardless of their circumstances. So I was exposed to not only a lot more racial and ethnic diversity, but a lot more geographic diversity, a lot of kids from downstate Illinois, which if you all are familiar with the state of Illinois, it's like the top half is like Wisconsin. Then there's like Chicago and then there's like Iowa and then there's Kentucky. I mean, it's almost like four different states really. And so meeting people who are from as far down South as you could go in the state, meeting people from inner city Chicago, who I'd never spent any time with meeting people from it was a free, it was free. Right. So was there also like an income diversity that you like a, a socio de- socioeconomic? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. A uh, kids who were in some of the most affluent communities in the state, kids who were from inner city Chicago, um, kids who were from downstate Illinois, kids whose parents were farmers. I mean, just everyone, everywhere. Kids from really big families, kids who were still living in joint family situations because they were still sponsoring their families to come over. Kids who had cars waiting for them at home. I mean, it was just all kinds of diversity. And that, I think, more than the racial ethnic diversity, that kind of like life experience diversity was also really shocking for me. 
um, that would be the first time really where I was meaningfully exposed to kids who had people who had very, very different life experiences, people who came from single families, people whose uh, single family homes, people who had experienced violence in their lives, people who you know, lived with their grandparents, people who had been working in the fields along with their parents up until now. Was IMSA a great equalizer? Did, did you feel like no one was othered there? Or did you feel like within that, like those inequities, those otheredness is the, the state of being othered comes out intrinsically? I think the commonality that we all had was not really about anything observable or like external circumstances, like life circumstances, like Oh, I live in the inner city. You know, I live in Chicago versus I live in some fine, you know, tiny farming town downstate. It was, we were all somehow othered because we were quote unquote too smart. And I didn't even have the worst of it. You know, I felt, I definitely felt like I was a big fish in Streeter's small pond. And then I went to IMSA and I was a tiny fish with the people I was in school with. I mean, I like to tell this story about, well, there are two things I like to say is that I took AB Calc 1, which is the literally the most basic calculus you can take in high school, the second semester of my senior year with like 10 other people. And we were all like the people who are like, oh my God, we just got to take this so we can graduate. You're back row hooligans. Yeah. Yeah. We were like, what the, like the remedial <laughs> calc class. I'm not kidding. Um, so that's one of my favorite stories. My other favorite story about going to IMSA, and I can't totally claim credit for this, but you know, I had people in my class. I really cannot take credit for having people in my class. What I meant to say was that um, people in my class, you know, had gone to International Math Olympiad. They were doing internships over the summer as high school students with NASA. And for those of you with children who love YouTube, the founder of YouTube, one of the founders of YouTube, Steve Chen, graduated a year before I did from IMSA. So those were the people that I was in high school with, the people who were, who are now founders and runners of these giant digital behemoths. They came out of my high school. So in one way, it was so unifying to be like, look, we're all here because we're all othered in some way. And that other is sort of like our academic drive or our academic ability. In another way, you get othered because you do have different abilities. Right. Like and they were like, oh, that's Shayla. She she's in AB calculus. Right. Right. Or and that it's still high school. So yeah, the the clicks and the who's popular and who's on top and who's not. And those existed. What is very different or was different when I was there is that because we had all been othered in our home communities, people found each other. You know, there there were rankings. There was, you know the popular Clicks. group and the less popular group, but people left each other alone. You found your little pod, your little group, and you just existed somewhat peacefully. Nobody was trying to get a leg up on anyone else. You just went about your day with the people that you found a home with. That's it. Nope. You know, there wasn't like, nobody's beating up on anyone else basically, or no one was trying to bully anyone. That was just not my experience there. I'm not saying that this is true for everyone, but it was not my experience at all. So the normal high school ways of being othered were there, but I think the sort of the, like I said, the unifying thread of like everyone being othered in their home schools felt like, okay, we're just, we're all here for the same reason and everyone just lay off each other. 
Which is really interesting. So to pivot a little bit, but still talk in this vein is uh, right before my eighth grade year, my parents, she, she was at IMSA. My parents moved us to um, Orland Park, which is the south suburb of Chicago. Yeah. That was what I got smacked in the face in terms of like the shock. Just yeah. everything is big. You know, it just I went to public school there. Every it just moving classrooms, you know, like at. St. Stephen's and Streeter, we didn't move. We stayed in one classroom with my 28 classmates and one teacher taught every single class. We would go upstairs for, you know, computer class or something, which at the time was like the big, yeah. yeah, Right. So what was that like for you then? Not just about, you know, sort of the, the logistics of moving from a small school to a really huge school, but what was it like for you to be very similarly to go from being one of the, if not the top academic, you know, achiever in that classroom to basically going, you know, somewhere to the top third. What was it like to go from being, for whatever reason, standing out, good or bad, but being special in various ways to being nothing special because of what you look like? I don't know if I really thought about it until recently. But, um, you know, I look back and I'm like there I was, yeah, I was in the top, let's say 35 of my huge class. And there were several South Asian, you know, Indian American people above me in that top 30. So I wasn't even in the top 30. I wasn't even the only Indian person in that group, but there was, it was not like that. It was not like in Streeter, you're like, oh, you're one of the few Indian people at, at, Sandberg in Orland, it just wasn't talked about like that. There were, in, there was so much diversity. There were so many people that within each group, you had a lot of diversity. I was a mathlete, which had white people, just everything. And, you know, I was in theater and our school was so big. I graduated with a class of 800 and it's even growing. It's grown since then. But our school was so big that there was popularity ranks among cliques. So you didn't have one popular group. You had the theater kids, and then there were popular theater kids and not popular mm. theater kids. So one thing that I did do was diversify a little bit, especially in the beginning. I was a mathlete, and I was in theater and Mualfa Theta, um, you know, and I tried out for the soccer team, which was not a good idea. No. no, those, those, I'd say those suburban, especially girls soccer at the time, that was like cutthroat. Yes. I was like, I played soccer. I could totally, I did this. I didn't try out for the swim team, but I have friends who um, were on the swim team and I would have just, got, I would, they would have drowned me that just either on purpose, on accident, one of the way, but you know, I've, I found my group and it, it didn't kind of to your point. The bigness of my high school made it so being, you know, being othered or being like, well, you're this thing. So you go over there. It was too big to do that. So well, where you kind of went small, right, mm-hmm. with IMSA, I went big. And so there was just no opportunity to, to feel weird or out there or unique or, you know, I mean, that's one of the things I did learn that, you know, you can 
blend in when everyone looks a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I was in, you know, accelerated classes, but they were filled to the brim. But then, you know, I was also kind of the derpy looking kid in my gym class. Or like I had to take a couple of like, you know, electives, which didn't have accelerated or honors Mm -hmm. classes. And so, you know, and someone was definitely better than me at XYZ. So, um, you know, it, it was really, it was great because I had a great high school experience and it was great because for the first time, for the first time, no one was telling me to talk about India, Mm. you know, we can go to India and they're like, okay, we'll see you when you get back. And it wasn't like, you know, tell us about cha or something, you know, it was like really just considered like, that's what you're doing. And there were some people who they were going to China for their Christmas break or Poland or whatever Mm -hmm. else. It was just really diverse. And so I wasn't special. And that was, that felt good actually to me. Yeah, that actually, so I was thinking about that as you were talking, you sort of touched on it just a bit, but if you can talk a little bit more about what was it like for you what was the experience like for you? Not just how you felt about it, but what was the experience like for you, the process like for you to go from being someone who stood out just by the way you looked? Um, there's no ability to blend in both because you know, you're one of 10 brown kids in the entire town. And also, you know, our dad, our parents were well known in a small town. So you know, there is the, the reality of those combination of two things, meaning that you had no anonymity you could never do anything without somebody seeing you and knowing that you were, you know, this person's kid and having your parents find out about it, even if there was nothing actually going on to living somewhere and being a part of a community where nobody knew who you were. I would say as an introvert, I loved it. And it sounds kind of backwards, right? Because you go from like being a small town to a big town. But, you know, one of the reasons I, my mother-in-law lives in a very small town in Michigan. And when we moved to Chicago, she said to me, you know, that just makes me really nervous because of safety. And I was like, it's the opposite for me where you're one of millions in that case, or in, you know, from Streeter to Orland, I was able to retreat when I wanted to retreat, go do the thing that I wanted to do. People didn't know mom and dad to the same level Uh, And there's just no way you could. So it's not like, okay, if I said something or did something, Mm -hmm. it would get back to them. And I mean, you weren't there. So I wasn't, I mean, I spent a lot of time being Shailashi's little sister, which is not a bad thing and normally wasn't, but I always had that association in Streeter. I was Shailashi's little sister. And finally, you know, I was my own person. I can do my own thing. But I, as an introvert who really needs my alone time and my time away, getting lost in the crowds was, was welcome. Mm-hmm. So I, my experience was really positive when I, yeah. I moved to Orland, I did feel freer and there were a lot more opportunities. Like, you know, we did theater at the community theater and Streeter, but I could do my own show or I could, I didn't have to be on stage. I was, I did a lot of like, you know, assistant directing and things like that. I went to Spain for a semester when I was in Orland that was just, the opportunities to do my own unique things mm-hmm. were much more abundant mm-hmm. to me in Orland. And so my experience was, I look back on that as I, it was just really lucky that we moved. Cause I wonder if I would have just become like a shell, like if I just would have mm. retreated into myself and, you know, just been unhappy 
or if I would have gone to IMSA. I mean, there's a lot of mm-hmm. options there, but I credit a lot of who I am now because of my high school experience and credit or discredit, whatever you want to call it. But it allowed me to be who I was fully without shame, without embarrassment, without because there were just so many people to choose from right. to, to walk with you. I think it's what it sounds like for you is that it was hard for you to always be that cultural ambassador and representative, not just an ambassador, but like this whole everywhere you go, people see you, they know who you are and you need to be on your best behavior. You need to be representing not just our family, but yes, that was true. Definitely our behavior was a reflection on our parents and and in the Indian community in Streeter and Indians in general. All of India. Right. Which, yeah, absolutely can be tiring. I can totally well, I rem- see that. Yeah, I remember I was in seventh grade when uh, Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated and we had a film strip about it. And literally, I had to answer questions for probably 20 minutes about fanaticism in India. Mm, that's interesting. And I'm like, well, you, now I look back, I'm like, well, uh, uh, what's his name from the Beatles? John Lennon. John Lennon was shot by a fan, you know, yeah. like Martin Luther King Jr. Like it's not fanaticism is not just elsewhere. Right. And also, you know, we, is, this is something that is happening now. It's like, well, it's not a domestic terrorist. He has mental health problems mm-hmm. when it's a Brown person, they're terrorists. Mm-hmm. So it kind of felt like that, you know, I mean, not at the time, but now I look back and I was like, what's wrong with your people? Right. Why can't they you know, just respect their leaders without recognizing that someone tried to kill Ronald Reagan in the eighties, in the early eighties. Someone is trying to kill, someone is, you know, planning or plotting to kill every major world leader at any given time. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit because just for time's sake, I guess, why this podcast? Why this podcast? Well, because you strong armed me into it. I did. I totally did. No, it's, it's a good story. I'm going to let Kosha tell that story in just a minute. But why this podcast? For me, this podcast is really about building connection and sharing stories of people for whom you think maybe you wouldn't have that connection. Hearing how much is the same, particularly for first-generation Americans, you know, some of it's a little different. There's, you know, maybe some things like light blue and other places it's dark blue, but where it's blue, it's blue. And where it's you know green, it's green. And where it's red, it's red. And the shading might be a little different. And there might be some more or less intensity depending upon any number of factors. But I'm just looking back at the last couple of years and it's been growing for a while, this ongoing sense of you don't belong here. Go well, back to where you came from. Yeah. The go back to where you came from, you don't belong here. We're seeing a lot of that now too. You know, the rhetoric that has come out of the previous administration around this global pandemic and continuously blaming it on China is resulting in some really ugly, racially based violence toward people who, you know, what's what's really amazing is there's sort of this belief that you can tell anything about someone by looking at them. And a just a really funny side note is my 13-year-old asked me about the Karate Kid and said, uh, 
do you know who Mr. Miyagi is? And I said, of course, I know who Mr. Miyagi is and was showing some clips. Did you did you share that I made you watch that movie about 25 times a month? I did say that it was your favorite movie in the whole world okay. at the time, at a certain age. But then they you know, kind of looked at me. And if you go back and you watch those clips of Pat Morita talking as Mr. Miyagi, it is like literally the most broken English ever. And, and I said, Isha, you know, what's really interesting. This is how this character was written. Said, this is how this person really talks. Pat Murray was like born in San Francisco, not San Francisco, Sacramento. Mm -hmm. He said he was born in California. He's a first generation American. Right. If you heard him talk without seeing what he looked like, you would never know anything about where he's from. And that's, you know, sort of, that's particularly true on the West Coast for Asians because Japanese Americans have been living in California for a very long time. I mean, generations upon generations of people, you know, some people I know who are of Japanese descent in California, their grandparents were first generation Americans. So their great grandparents came over. Some people don't even know when their ancestors came over. So to somehow look at someone and say, you look like you're vaguely Chinese, you know, your background is vaguely Asian. I'm going to take my anger out on you. That's where I wanted to go with this, which is what is a unique contribution we can make with the stories we want to tell. Let's try and build connection and share what's different, but what's so much the same about the experience that we as first-generation Americans are having. I totally agree with you. And I think also for me, for a long time, I've been seeing examples of representation and saying, see, this is why representation matters. And the fact that you can count on your two hands, right? Like the Indian representation, that's not stereotypical. And, you know, Hank Azaria, if you want to come on this podcast, I would love to talk to you. And because his response was beautiful. I agree. I agree. To that Apu um, situation. Hari Kondabolu, also you can come on. Anybody can come on this podcast. Um, But I remember uh, it kind of started. I was listening to Cal Penn on whose actual name is Sculpin on the Armchair Expert podcast. And he said his first role in a movie, this was before Harold and mm-hmm. I believe, he took a role and they said that his name was going to be Taj Mahal. It was one of those like Van Wilder movies. Correct, yeah. correct. And his name was going to be Taj Mahal. And he took it because at that time, he, he had no professional capital. Right. And, you know, just thinking about that and then thinking about the fact that one of our first guests, Reka, who you'll hear soon, essentially cried her eyes out when Kamala Harris accepted her vice uh, vice presidential nomination. And she went on stage and accepted and she thanked her chitis, which means auntie or aunt in Tamil. And she cried because it was the first time on that kind of stage. Um, the fact that you know, there's a animator whose name is Anu and we call her Batsy, but my daughter's name is Anushka. And I said, oh, look, and Anushka was jumping up and down that there is this animator that she saw in a book mm-hmm. that animated some or uh, that illustrated some of her favorite pictures that had her name. And she actually gave uh, on Instagram, she gave a shout out to my daughter 
And Anushka was jumping up and down. Batsy was jumping up and down. Like, I can't believe this person who has my name, you know? So mm-hmm. it's just this growing idea of representation and that we need people at the table. We need people's voices who are different. I love this story. Tina Fey tells a story about, you know, that classic mom jean commercial. Mm-hmm. That's like one of the most iconic parodies that SNL has ever done. Mm-hmm. She said that she had pitched it to a room of male writers at SNL. And they were like, no, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. And so she went and vetted the idea out, you know, and pitched it to a bunch of people. And all the women were like, that is hilarious. And she says, you know, I don't blame them for not Mm -hmm. getting it. I don't blame them for not thinking it's funny or even not coming up with it. But the fact that there was no woman in the room who had the voice at the table meant that until she came along, that idea would never have even entered their brains, Yeah, um, much less gotten on screen and now become one of their classic parodies. Mm -hmm. So that was my, that was really why this podcast for me. And so the story that Shulshi was hinting at earlier is I had an idea. This was right after um, Kamala Harris said her classic, I am speaking, excuse me, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking line at the VP debate, which we watched together. We did. Yeah. And I was like, I want to do, I think we can do a podcast. And I didn't, I had no real like definitive ideas, no concrete ideas as you might, you'll figure out during this podcast. I'm a, I'm a, I'm really good at sidetracking ideas yes. and, and details. And the she's really good at, you know, driving the train forward. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. That I was like, I have an idea. And she's like, okay, we text a lot, a lot. And she's like, what's your idea? And I was like, she's like, I have five minutes before I have to go. Like, tell me your idea. And I was like, no, I'll tell you later. And then we sat down once and she's like, I am so busy. And she listed 12 things probably that you had. And uh, like your kids were like number six. Like you had (laughs) so many things. I think, I don't even know if Justin made it on on the list. But then she's like, what is your proposal? What is it? And I was like, no, I'll tell you, like, I'm going to take you out to lunch. So I felt like I had to like wine and dine you. And I took you to lunch and we were, this is, we were able to sit outside. It was back in November. You took me to lunch at Panera. So that's really high quality whining and dining. Well, there was no wine. Yeah. But we could sit outside and um, she's like, finally, like, okay, what is it? And I said, I think we should do a podcast. And your face was, hmm, okay. Like very much like, tell me more because literally I just listed the 12 things I have to do in the next two hours. And you've been talking about writing a book for some time and it would be a series of essays that are based on interviews you would have with different people of different experiences. And I said, what if that book actually becomes like an addendum or a, a compendium to this podcast? And we call it, I am speaking. And as soon as I said that, I saw like your shoulders go down a little and you're like, okay, there, this thing might have legs. Right. And I don't know if I told you this, but before I was willing to hundred percent commit to this, I went and did a bunch of searches and I went to look to see, you know, on various platforms, on Podbean, on Apple podcasts, on Stitcher, on all of these different platforms. Is there anything like this? And after doing some, you know, there's some podcasts that, they're very story-based and interview-based. There are a lot of podcasts like that, but no one was doing what we had been thinking to do. And that's when I was like, no, I'm in. Let's go. 
because this is going to be a unique contribution to the world. And it's an important contribution in this moment that we are in and are trying to pull ourselves out of trying to be less divided as a country, less othering as a country for people who not only are they not looking like us, they don't have the same experience as us. They, you know, rural, urban, blue, red, people of color, not people of color. Gay, I mean, straight, LGBTQ. Yeah, so many different divisions. But can we get past that and see what do we all have in common? What do we all want beyond sort of the like life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? What does that mean really? And how do our experiences shape how we look at the world? Well, I think it's really clear. It uh, We know this from every day. You don't even need a research paper to show. But when you get personal, when you have conversations, mm-hmm. you look past the color of someone's skin. You look past when someone is actually breaking bread or sharing a beer or whatever it is. That's when we're able to get past some of those things. And shout out to the queen of all queens, Vice President Kamala Harris, for saying these words and giving us the inspiration, not just with the title of the podcast, but I think the the inspiration to sit down and start having these conversations and help people reclaim their power and help people understand that every single person has power. Yeah. If we just take a second and listen to them. And that's really where we're at. We really hope you enjoy this podcast. We hope you go on this journey with us. We're brand new. So there's going to be some, you know, definitely some bumps in the road. Yes. Yes. We're figuring out our systems here. We're going to laugh. We might cry a little. We're going to share some stories and we're going to give every single person that wants one a place at the table. I am Shailushi Ritchie and I am speaking. And I am Kosha Karstens, and I am speaking. Thank you, and enjoy this podcast.